some of these decisions will not be easy ones for politicians for sure because it'll affect their district and their state and potential economic growth there we need to start thinking before these compounding problems become such that we can't respond or the response is more costly, more disruptive, and that it disrupts people's lives and where they have to go. And all of this is to make sure that Americans are safe. They don't lose their life in a wildfire or in a hurricane or in a flood or, or whatever. So it makes us safe as Americans, but also the country more secure. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is about a topic that we talk a lot about here at ASP, but from a new perspective, climate change and its impact on American lives. We had hosted an event for Climate Week featuring Judge Alice Hill and Admiral Lee Gunn, where we had discussed the idea of climate migrants and refugees, a fairly common discussion point when talking about security threats of climate change. But this was different because we were talking about Americans. Alex Hackbarth, ASP's Director of Climate and Energy Security, and I were having a deep conversation about this offline, so we decided it would make a good podcast. The conversation comes in the midst of an unprecedented fire season in the West Coast, repeated hurricanes and tropical storms hitting the Gulf Coast, and an overall awakening about the impacts that climate change will have on American lives. While I am actually optimistic that we can handle this, we are the wealthiest nation in the world, with plenty of room in temperate, well-watered regions to move people to. It does seem like an issue that our current, short-term political system is not well-positioned to handle. For example, we are wealthy enough to protect New Orleans. We've already built bigger levees, but we're not wealthy enough to protect all of the Louisiana Bayou from sea level rise. We can protect Lower Manhattan, but surely we can't protect all of Long Island and the Jersey Shore. We can protect California's cities, farms, and towns, but perhaps we shouldn't encourage rebuilding in tinder dry forests. What you protect, where people move, and how they do it are difficult questions, raising issues of economics, equity, and even security. That's why I'm concerned about our, our ability to deal with this right now. You can send me an email at info at americansecurityproject.org to let us know what you think and what we missed. Now let's get into the show. Alex Ackbarth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So we've been talking about climate change and national security and what this means within the United States offline all through this week as, as it's climate week. And we had a great event with uh, Judge Alice Hill. You and I have been having these discussions and then we thought, why not make a podcast out of it? Yeah, totally. Great idea. So here we go. Uh, so... We're on hurricane or tropical storm beta now, which is a really aggressive hurricane season in the United States. And that seems like really early to be on to Greek letters, right? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, so as of mid-September, I think we had 23 named storms which is a lot for this, this early in the season. And eight of those, I believe, turned into hurricanes, Laura and Teddy being the major category three or higher storms. So we're certainly seeing you know, a larger number of storms brewing in the Atlantic for this early in the season. Yeah, and we had this weird thing where there was Laura and Marco, like we're gonna cross in the Gulf. 
So I think this, this has kind of driven home to a lot of people that climate change is real, it's happening, and it's actually affecting where people live. And of course, we also see this with the fires. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're from Oregon. This is a family issue for you all as well to think about how these impact where your parents live and everything like that. Yeah, Oregon, California, Washington, Colorado, much of the West is burning these days. When I worked for Senator Wyden many years ago, we were constantly dealing with wildfires in Oregon. It was a major part of fall work, if you will, but year round too. And I think it is. I think it is really starting to factor into where people are choosing to live, both in the Southeast when it comes to hurricanes and in the Gulf and in out West. Fires are an imminent danger. We've seen, you know, the damage that they've caused. I believe it was 2017 or 2018 when the Santa Rosa fire leveled most of Santa Rosa in California. Um, In Oregon this year, half a million people were forced to move. It leveled several several towns in Oregon. So when you're faced with that kind of imminent threat year after year after year after year, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people stop and think, okay, do I want to live here anymore. There's this term of art in the refugee community, the IDP, internally displaced persons, right? So people who don't cross borders, so they're, they're not refugees, but they are displaced from their homes, either temporarily or permanently. And so it's really almost cognitive dissonance, right? That we're having this problem in the United States. We think about this as a problem for Syrians or for Bangladeshis or in Sudan or something like that. But actually, the problem of internally displaced persons, climate migrants, climate refugees is something that we need to think about in the United States. Absolutely. And, you know, the same threats that we talk about when it comes to climate change, you know, facing Syrians, drought, right? Extreme drought affected the agriculture sector, which forced Syrians into the major cities where government services and the government wasn't able to absorb the influx. And we all know what happened there, the Syrian civil war kicked off, large migration. But extreme drought is happening in the United States too, right? This isn't a threat that, you know, over there anymore, it is certainly a threat here. And it puts pressure on local, state, and the federal government and how we manage the the threat of extreme heat, extreme drought, hurricanes, rising sea levels, wildfires. Exactly. And there's been this idea that in the United States, we have, we're a wealthy nation. And so therefore, we have the capacity to adapt to these things. We have the ability to pay for adaptation. We have that sort of ability. But do, do we actually have the capacity to do that sort of stuff? Our political system has to actually do that. If people are going to pick up and move, it's going to be the people with the money who pick up and move. And those who are stuck, and if their property values crater because everybody's leaving, there's no demand to live in the wildland urban interface because it's on fire every year then their property value is gone. They can't sell and move to someplace more expensive. So does this become something for state government, local government, or even the federal government to do? There, there has been efforts actually within by the federal government to pay for 
people to pick up and move from climate impacted areas. We've seen it in Alaska and we've seen it in Louisiana. Alaska local Inuit communities having to move back from the areas where their traditional community was literally falling into the, the ocean. And then in Louisiana, you have these, these communities down in the bayou south and east of New Orleans that are literally the swamp is going away. There's all this area that used to be land, used to be their cities. They have to, they have to move. Problem is that that gets quite expensive. We're talking like millions of dollars per person to plan and move them. And they often might not be better off. Right. I think you make a very interesting point in terms of money and political capacity, or, you know, I might call it political will as well. So to your point, we, in, in several instances, we have, we, the federal government in conjunction with state and local governments have helped communities move away from high climate risk areas. But in many other instances, the federal government specifically in but with working with state and local governments have made it possible for people to stay in climate threatened right. areas, right? There are lots of federal programs, national flood insurance programs. There's also the, I believe it's called the Fair Access to, it's a program based on fair access to insurance that basically allows people to rebuild in areas that are constantly threatened by climate change. I mean, the national flood insurance program is the, the pinnacle of this, where you have some homes that have a flood insurance payout every 30 years or every few years. Right. And so the question, I think, and it's, a, it's an interesting policy one, should we be making it accessible, feasible, whatever, for people to stay in areas that will constantly be threatened by climate change? Or to your earlier point, should we be helping people move to areas where they're safer? Because if we're constantly have populations in areas that are inundated by flooding, hurricanes, wildfires, that's a diversion of resources every year to save those people. You're putting emergency services at risk. You're potentially diverting U.S. troops, National Guard troops to go uh, assist in those missions. And it's a huge federal response and state and local response. And should we be letting people stay or should we be helping people move? Additionally, you've got the potential for stranded assets in some of these areas. Uh, if, so it's an interesting policy, complex policy problem for sure. Yeah, and requires some forethought and planning, actually. And maybe I can talk a little bit from my personal experience. So I'm originally from the New York area, from New Jersey. And Superstorm Sandy, when that came in in 2012, there was, of course, a lot of politicians afterwards saying, oh, we will rebuild, we'll build back, we'll build back better, was, was some of the things that, that, that were said. You know, so we saw it along the Jersey Shore, and we saw it along like Breezy Point in New York, these areas that are really exposed. And you had this, this sort of interesting experiment that in some towns along the, the Jersey Shore, they had taken down the sand dunes because it provided better views to the beachfront homes. And then in others, they had sand dunes. The ones that had sand dunes, the houses were still there. The ones that didn't, the houses were all pushed away. There was a FEMA program 
that encouraged building sand dunes. And they, they rebuilt all of these sand dunes and Army Corps of Engineers just brought in tons and tons of sand along the whole area, provides protection, provides storm protection for, for borderlands and everything like that. So it's an interesting thing, but you, it, it requires some forethought and, and it requires some kind of pushback on this idea that we will just rebuild the way it was. The easiest thing always is to rebuild, but then if you're in this targeted area, it becomes a, a cycle that becomes quite costly. Right. And we need to think about how we're going to plan for the people who do choose to move. I think the, the time is now to think about if people will plan to start moving. And it's not going to be, hopefully, not a one you know, major event that causes millions of people to move overnight. Uh, this will be, be gradual, but it will be in large numbers at some point. And so thinking from a, a local, state, and federal level, what do we need to do now to make this transition easier for people who are thinking about that? And I thought, you know, Judge Hill made a very interesting point during the event on Tuesday during Climate Week when she was talking about certifications for people who are professionals that require nurses, teachers, all that kind of stuff, making it easier to transfer those certifications across borders, mm. doctor, so that people aren't forced to stay where they are because getting recertified to go somewhere else either costs money or time to go back to school to meet the certifications for that so that people have more ease in moving so when you're thinking through the calculus there aren't things prohibiting you from moving to a safer place yeah the difference of having an income or not is the the reason why they're moved you know People migrate, people move for many reasons. It's not just that my home is threatened. It's also for economic access. It's for family reasons. It's, it's all of this other stuff. So there's reasons people stay and reasons people move. And you have to think about all of that when you do the planning, you do the thinking for it. I think this does dovetail in with a lot of other things that have been happening in the United States, though, as well. And, and we mentioned offline talking some about sort of the Rust Belt cities and, and the formerly big towns of the American Midwest, Detroit, Duluth, Minnesota, Buffalo, these places that have been hollowed out by kind of post-industrial rot or whatever, actually are, are well adapted for an age of climate change, right? Surrounded by fresh water, winters likely won't be as terrible in, in uh, the northern areas as, as they have been in the past. And potentially an area where you could incentivize people to move to if you can deal with the other problems, jobs, cultural issues, all these other sorts of things. It's, I think, a, a real opportunity to rebuild some of these areas into vibrant centers. Yeah, totally. In addition to the jobs, the infrastructure, the U.S. is not known for the quality of its infrastructure these days. I think that 
Yeah, it used to be. Exactly. It used to be. But year on year, we've gotten failing grades in terms of our national infrastructure, roads, bridges, so on and so forth. So is the infrastructure in these places able to handle a large influx? What's required to update that infrastructure in order to accommodate all these people? What about energy demands? You know, large influx of people into areas that will see rising temperatures. We're not talking about 100 degree day in, day out temperatures like we'd see in the South, but temperatures in Minnesota and in the upper Midwest will go up. And so people will need more energy to cool their homes potentially, but also just more people will need energy. Is the energy grid up to the task of providing that? What about government services in those places? What can we do to help bolster state governments to be able to provide the necessary services for people? It's a huge task, I think. One that when planned properly, you know, with enough forethought, I think is certainly manageable. Yeah. And so ASP, American Security Project, we do think about the national security and security issues around this. We have to think about planning this so that people actually have things to do. It doesn't become a security problem. We're not used to thinking about security problems within the borders of the United States. But I mean, I I recall after Katrina in 2005, the numbers of displaced people were like massive, 600,000 people in the storm picked up and left. That was in the weeks afterwards and many went back, but hundreds of thousands of them didn't and were essentially internal refugees. Many of them ended up in Houston or Baton Rouge or other areas. And I remember particularly in Texas, there was this sort of narrative that, oh, these people from New Orleans are violent. And they've brought in violence and created a a security problem in our schools, in our cities. I don't know how much of that was feeding into the biased narrative uh, of the time and how much of it was real. But there is displaced people. They don't have anything to do, like we saw in the Syrian civil war, are easy recruits for violent actors. Yeah. And jobs, right? You know, to your your point, there was, I remember also around that time and with other natural disasters and people moving, and we see this, to your point, overseas all the time, they're taking our jobs. You know, these people who are coming in, they're trying to plant roots. So they're taking jobs that they might not otherwise take because they need a source of income. And that's taking jobs from locals. And that can happen in the United States. And that certainly causes tension and how that tension plays out can be problematic from a security perspective, no doubt. I think we need to think about that so that we reduce the potential for conflict any way possible. Yeah. So one of the terms that we talk about is retreat, right? So there's, there's retreat and then there's fortifying an area. So just to think about the Gulf Coast and Louisiana. What we've basically done after Katrina is we've fortified New Orleans. We've, we've built back the levees. We've increased the investment. It was a huge investment in protecting New Orleans. And I think New Orleans feels more safe now than prior to Katrina. They feel like they fixed the problems. They feel like they've got a, a handle on it so that they're more resilient than they were. But meanwhile, if you protect certain areas, the water has to go somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So you've had this area where the bayous of Louisiana have been decimated. 
sea level rise and storms and actually subsidence from oil and gas drilling has significantly increased the amount of open water of what used to be kind of swamp and everything like that. We actually took a, a trip down there three or four years ago and a couple of our affiliated generals flew over the area in a small plane and the pilot would be able to look down and say, oh, that used to be land. Oh, I, I know people who used to live there, pointing to what is now open water. So you have this thing where you have to retreat if there's no, no place to live. So perhaps we have to think more about fortifying certain areas, keeping certain areas, and then retreating from the areas where it's too costly or the, the population density isn't high enough or anything like that. Problem is the politics of that ain't easy. <laughs> and it costs money. Yeah. And in some of these places where you might be able to fortify um, as opposed to retreat, especially along the Gulf Coast, Southeast United States, you're also dealing with extreme heat. The wet bulb globe temperature in some of these places which factors in humidity might make these places uninhabitable. You won't be able to survive outside. You know, we're not talking about in the next 10 years, but you know, over time, rising temperatures, increased humidity. So do we make those investments for fortifying those areas now? Or do we recognize that the trend is, is unlikely going to turn around such that rising temperatures plateau and you're able to survive there? Anyone who's spent time in the Southeast in the summer on a really hot, humid day knows that it can't get too much hotter and more humid and still be able right. to survive outside. I'm, I'm maybe more optimistic about that sort of climate threat than you are. Just having been to someplace like Doha in the Middle East, it's like you can at adapt with air conditioning. You can figure out ways to live your life inside when it's that hot outside and, and deal with it. And part of this, and part of fortifying maybe, is to update our living standards from the 20th century to the 21st century and figure out ways, whether, like you talk about, with infrastructure, with energy, with ways to adapt to these changes. You, know, you can live inside. You can have air conditioning and figure out ways to do it, but it's a lot more efficient to do that if you're in a city than if you are in a sprawling suburb, right? I'm a big fan of cities, and I think that cities are one of the best adaptations to a climate change future. And concentrating people into cities and then actually figuring out ways to let the countryside be the countryside. You need farmers, but you don't need this sort of sprawling American suburbia if it's always going to burn. Okay, I think there are ways to adapt, certainly, as long as the energy that we're using to adapt to rising temperatures is clean energy, right? Otherwise, we're just feeding back into this problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that, you know, that's a transition that absolutely needs to happen. But I also think, and I have mixed feelings about the urbanization, because as we've seen with this pandemic, there's been a, you know, people have been fleeing from cities and trying to get away. And so, you know, knowing that climate change is also potentially going to increase the number of, well, 
we know that climate change is changing disease vectors, which has the potential to also change human contact with various yeah. animals and diseases and so on and so forth, which pandemic. Looking to that future, we also need to ensure that we have better infrastructure in place to respond to a pandemic like we're right. seeing now in a city where large concentrations of people like we've seen in the developing world, disease spreads like wildfire. Right. So there, there are lots of challenges with urbanization. And so when done right, it's certainly a possibility. I just think that it takes a lot of planning. It takes political will to make some of those calculations and investments yeah. in what's needed. And infrastructure isn't cheap. Yeah. You know, building yeah. roads and bridges and all that kind of stuff is very expensive. The, um, it, the urbanization of Paris in the 19th century, the, the building of the Paris as we know now with wide boulevards and fairly dense housing, six-story housing, lots of people, was actually done in response to an epidemic, a typhus epidemic, and figuring out ways to get people out of the slums and into more hygienic areas. It was also done that way so that Napoleon III could also get the army in better to respond to the Parisian uprisings. So there was a security side of that and a, a pandemic side to that. So the thing about it, though, was that it, it required planning, and it was a multi-decadal plan. This was something that had political buy-in from the, the mayor and the national government on down to the people, or they overwhelmed the opposition and implemented it. So I think there's an important sort of lesson here is that maybe we have to start getting used to government being more involved and more thoughtful about where and how we live as Americans as climate change happens and is becoming more of a threat to our livelihoods. Absolutely. I think from our conversation here, I take away a couple major points. One, planning. We're going to have to plan and the planning needs to start now, right? Money. It's going to take money and we need to be cognizant of where we spend that money, how we spend that money with 20, 30, 40 year time horizons thinking about, okay, if we're making this multi-billion dollar investment now, mm -hmm. how is climate change going to impact that investment? but also political will and government involvement. It needs to happen and it will, it will take, some of these decisions will not be easy ones for politicians for sure, because it'll affect their district and their state and potential economic growth there. We need to start thinking before these compounding problems become such that we can't respond or the response is more costly, more disruptive, and that it disrupts people's lives and where they have to go. And all of this is to make sure that Americans are safe. They don't lose their life in a wildfire or their home or in a hurricane or in a flood or, or whatever. So it makes us safe as Americans, but also the country more secure. The problem though is we're Americans. And Americans don't necessarily trust the central government to tell them what to do and where to go. I mean, our whole country was kind of founded in revolt against that. So I do, I do worry sometimes about that. We have, we have a great ability to muddle through. But I do think that, that one thing we have to, have to realize is that if our government doesn't plan it, if individuals don't plan it, it'll be planned for you. It'll be done for you, whether it's the weather or whether it's the markets. And that's another thing that's happening is 
the insurance markets you see out west they pulled out of giving fire insurance home homeowners insurance for fires to a number of places in california then the state of california came in and put the kibosh on that for a year but there's this looming threat that you're not going to be able to get your home insured if you live in this fire prone area flood insurance there is no private flood insurance in lots of the the areas threatened by climate change the problem is is that the federal government stepped in and created the national flood insurance program as a way to backstop that but the result is is that it's incentivized a lot of development in these flood prone areas most threatened it's a real challenge and again it requires planning, but if, if you don't plan, it's going to be planned for you. Right. And there was earlier this year, First Street Foundation released a map. They'd done a comprehensive survey of the floodplains uh, flood in the United States and found that 70%, I believe, more buildings in the United States were vulnerable to flood risk than previously thought. That's a huge number. And those are people who likely have, you know, insurance, I would hope. And that's a huge, if people are constantly rebuilding in those areas, that's a huge cost. Yeah. And, and if the maps are wrong, then it's, it's actually a problem for the insurers and the reinsurers too, because they're not properly hedged. Right. Risk isn't spread sufficiently. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've highlighted a lot of issues and challenges. I don't know if we found any solutions yet, other than Detroit is going to be beautiful in 2040. <laughs> I've heard Detroit is awesome, an awesome city now. Uh, it is reemerging um, as, a, as a great place. I have friends who live there and are from there. So yeah, and Midwest. Cheap. You, can, yeah. You, can, you can buy a house for a thousand bucks. And you're close to the boundary waters. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, exactly. I guess we're all moving to the upper Midwest. <laughs> Someday. Oh, well. Well, thanks for, for talking here today, Alex. And uh, you can always, uh, listeners, you can always learn more about our work at americansecurityproject.org and look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Andrew.